Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm so glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Vincent Rougeau. Vince is a dean of Boston College Law School, and as of July 1st of this year, he will be the new president of the College of the Holy Cross. And it's another conversation like the one we had a few weeks ago with Professor Matthew Kressler. He's a historian. And if you remember, we engage with white Catholics' participation in massive resistance to desegregation and what that tells us about the perception of Catholicism and what real Catholicism looks like in this country and the impacts of that historical, maybe misinterpretation of Catholicism on the faith today. And so it's that kind of conversation where you really need to be attentive because we're going to be unfolding some ideas maybe that aren't well known. So I'm going to need you to really listen to this episode. And you're not going to believe all the things we were able to discuss. We talk about systemic racism, critical race theory, wokeism, and reverse racism, but we do it by putting it all in a broader context of Catholic education today. What does it mean? Why is it so important to educate the whole person? And also to engage with really complex ideas, ideas with which we may not agree, but we should listen and engage with them. And I do say that a lot on this podcast, and I say it because it's the truth. We need to be able to engage with ideas that are different from our own and find out what's true about them, what's good about them. And how do we do this with all remaining faithful Catholics? Is it true that you can consider critical race theory and not abandon the faith? Well, we're going to talk about that in this episode. And I think Vince is really the right person to have these conversations with because he is a lawyer and he is a Black Catholic. And he really is helping to form people in a Catholic understanding of these issues where all of these things are being discussed today in the academy. And he's done some really impressive work on racial justice at Boston College Law School. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from him. And I'm just hoping that you, dear listener, will take the time to really listen and be open to the conversation because it's all about pursuit of truth. And that's what we're trying to do in this episode. As you know, I'm doing this podcast with America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening around the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. Look, you may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. I mean, that's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. And you know what? The best way to support this ministry and my podcast is to get a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Vince Rougeau is up next. So glad you could be with us. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad. You know what? I was looking at you and I said, gosh, you look like my dad and his kinfolk. And then to come to find out that we actually could be related because your grandmother is a Purvis. Her maiden name is Purvis. Yes. My mother's mother's maiden name is Purvis. Okay. I'm claiming it. We're kinfolk. I mean, you look so much. like When I looked at you, I was like, my gosh, if he doesn't look like my daddy and all all those people. So, and it's something interesting about the African-American experience, you know, 
the impact of slavery and dispersing of people and families all over the country, it very well could be that we are related. So we got to get on that. No, uh, we should look into that genealogy, which is something my mother loves to do. So we'll put her on that project. (laughs) Please do. I'd be happy to discover more cousins. And my gosh, what an honor to have somebody like you in the family or me in your family, however you want to see it. (laughs) You know, but congratulations on your new position with the College of the Holy Cross. And gosh, it seems like you are a trailblazer here, if I'm not mistaken, the first African-American president of the College of the Holy Cross. That's correct? That's correct. Oh, my gosh. And the first layman. And the Oh, my gosh. Go ahead, brother. Go (laughs) ahead. Go ahead with your bad self. I love it. So what are your what are your some of your hopes to, you know, what you want to achieve in this new position um, at the College of the Holy Cross? Well, the College of the Holy Cross is really unique in that it's the only Jesuit liberal arts college in the United States. And so that's a really special space to occupy. And we bring, you know, that 500 years of Jesuit higher education to that project. So I'm really excited about carving out a space in higher ed for a small Jesuit liberal arts college to really have an impact across a wide range of areas. And in particular, to really demonstrate how a Catholic institution as part of a global church in a time of you know great global turmoil and a time of growing multiculturalism in our own country can really educate leaders for the future who are rooted in a sense of spirituality and morals and ethics, but also have the best possible intellectual formation. I have not been educated in a Jesuit institution, but everybody that I've ever met that has been educated by Jesuits that is their main, they say, I went to a Jesuit high school or I attended a Jesuit college. So they do believe that there's something special and particular about the way the Jesuits educate a person that needs to be known. And it's almost like they're like, see my credentials? I am Jesuit educated, so I know my stuff. That's right. That's right. Well, it's really about educating the whole person. You know, I like to think of it as a body, mind, and spirit. You know, that, mm. that holistic formation in the Jesuit tradition, which is just so incredibly meaningful and carries you through a lifetime of learning. Well, I think when you approach education in that way, you have thinking people, feeling people. I mean, just to say the whole person is there. I imagine it also impacts not only how they see the world, but how they interact with the world. And we need more whole people, if you will, interacting with the world rather than this compartmentalizing which I think robs us of our ability to be able to interact in a way that is influenced by our faith, that our faith is a part of who we are and it comes to bear in our human relationships. I sound Jesuit educated you sound now. like a Jesuit educated person. <laughs> 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 See all this time that America's rubbing off of me being around these Jesuits is a good thing. But one of the things you did as dean of Boston College Law School is that you started something called the Forum on Racial Justice in America. and For our listeners who are unaware of what that is, could you give them a brief overview of what that is? Sure. So in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, as everyone is probably aware, institutions of all types around the country, communities, businesses, really sat down and asked themselves, are we doing enough to deal with the problem of racial justice in the United States? And at Boston College, the president, William Leahy, the Board of Trustees, and many other constituencies across the university had the same sort of reckoning. We all began to ask ourselves, are we doing enough at Boston College to engage this racial reckoning that the the country is going through? And the answer was no, we weren't. Mm. And so 
in conversation with the president and the trustees and others, the president asked me if I would lead an initiative called the Forum for Racial Justice in America that would take a close look at the issue of racial justice in the context of who we were as a university in terms of the community that we were building in our institution and also our engagement with the community around us. And so it was an idea around the concept of conversation and listening mm. to hear from people in the institution and outside of it about their experiences, particularly the experiences of Black people and people of color within the institution and within the greater Boston community. And then to use the resources that we have as a university to start thinking more deeply about how to address many of those problems that would come out of that conversation, out of those discussions. So I kudos on that because I'm seeing so much pushback on the notion of racism being a factor in these racial disparities. And a lot more people are trying to, in their own way, say it's more of a cultural issue among African-Americans. So the idea that you all were able to have these conversations and say, we want to do something about racism to me is remarkable. And I keep thinking of other universities where students maybe have pushed back on certain practices in universities that were considered racist. For example, at University of Texas, Austin, I guess the students didn't want to sing some song that they felt was racist. It was a school song. And wealthy alum and donors pushed back and said, sing that song or we're cutting off the money. So how do you manage, you know, what you all were trying to do with this racial justice in America, this forum, with also maybe managing donors and alum, you know, or taking that risk with your donors and alum? Yeah, there are some real tensions involved in trying to have these conversations, and people really have to come to them from a place of humility and a desire to listen and learn. But when those conversations start moving forward, there can be pushback. There are going to be people who are not comfortable with what they're hearing or with what the sort of consequences of having those conversations might be. One program we started was called Courageous Conversations, where we specifically went in to topics that we knew would be difficult, but we set up ground rules and we trained people to facilitate those conversations in a way that would allow people to speak truthfully and honestly and hopefully avoid some of the natural tendencies that people would have to become defensive. Oh. Still not easy and yeah, didn't sure. always work, but I think we made a lot of progress by you know, thinking very carefully about how those conversations needed to happen if they were going to be productive. So that makes me think of what might be some of the roadblocks you all could face. And I imagine charges of wokeism, <laughs> you know, maybe would be leveled at Boston College. So I have an understanding of being woke from being in the Black community. My definition, my understanding is that you're just awake to injustice. You're awake to injustice and you want to do something about it. But it seems like wokeism, people are defining that is something different, is my understanding of what being woke means. Yeah, you are going to have always have people in these institutions who believe that this is some sort of political project. And I think what's happened with that term woke is that it has been sucked into the nation's political divide. And if you use it, you're speaking as a liberal progressive and people shut down. They stop listening to you. 
rather than thinking about the term in the way that you just described, awake to injustice. And I think the biggest problem we face, and this isn't just at Boston College, I think this is everywhere in this country, is that there is a tendency to become immediately defensive when the issue of race is, is raised. Oh, yeah. So people look for escape. Uh, you know, I call them exit off ramps. You know, I want to get out of this conversation. I don't want to confront these issues. So I'm going to find something that allows me to dismiss it completely. So if someone uses the term woke, I'm out of here because that's uh. just telling me that this is some, you know, lefty, progressive project that I'm not going to listen to, or that's not consistent with my my beliefs. And so, of course, then the people that need to be listened to are not heard. Right. So, you know, you have to try to break down some of those barriers by unpacking what kind of terms are we using and why are we using those terms and what is it that we're actually trying to do here and how are we going to proceed in this conversation? Because at least we need to agree that we need to have this conversation. And I do think we made a lot of progress there. People understood after George Floyd that these types of conversations needed to happen. One of the things, too, that as I was reading about the Racial Justice Forum at Boston College, y'all just straight out said structural racism is a thing. <laughs> you know, y'all didn't play around. You're like, we're just not even, structural racism is a thing. Systemic racism is a thing. And that seems to be very much a pushback in all talks about racial justice, about the existence of systemic racism, structural racism. How are you all able to establish that or get over that hurdle of people accepting that and understanding that it is a reality, that it is something that exists? How did you do that? Well, we had a lot of conversations with a lot of people in various academic fields who could present data and evidence as to what structural racism actually is and how it works. So, for instance, in the healthcare space, demonstrating how you know race leads to huge disparities in healthcare. But in the context of working at a place like Boston College, I started from this idea that look, in the Catholic intellectual tradition there is a real understanding of the idea of structural injustice, of structural sin. So we need to, if we're a Catholic institution and we're thinking in terms of our own tradition, we have to let go of this notion that sin can only occur in the context of individual acts or omissions. That yeah. isn't the way our tradition has come to understand sin or understand injustice. And I think often in the United States in particular, we have a real cultural problem as Americans separating ourselves from the idea of, you know, despite what I may or may not do, I still may live in a society or a structure that is actually engaging in practices or acts that are suppressing other people. And I have to understand that structure and attack it if those injustices are going to end. But people reflexively often become very defensive and say, I'm not involved in racism. I'm not involved in slavery. How can you make the right. assertion that this structure of racism exists, one, and two, how can you say I'm responsible for it? Well, we need to have that conversation because it's clear that it exists. There's evidence to demonstrate how and why it exists. And frankly, as Catholics, we should understand intimately because our tradition speaks to this in many different ways. It's always been something that befuddles me when I hear Catholics saying, I didn't, you know, own slaves and therefore why should I have to do anything about it? And I'm like, uh... Jesus didn't sin, but he sure enough took up the cross for us, didn't he? It's almost as if we should not love our neighbor, particularly if a loving our neighbor requires any kind of sacrifice on our part. And I'm like, how can you square that with being Catholic, I guess, for me? I was just like, it just seems so incoherent to me, especially when I'm like, 
do you go into a Catholic church and do you not see the crucifix with the body on it? And what does that call to mind? What Christ did for us? Why would I not want to love my neighbor in the same pattern in which Christ loved all of us to set us free? So that to me was a, you know. Absolutely. And what I, in that same vein, I'm often thinking, if you read the Gospels, where is Christ doing his ministry? What parables, what actions does Christ use to teach us the faith, right? We're always, he's working with the marginalized, with the poor, with the despised, with the people on the margins. And here in our own society, we have a story of people who have been systematically and routinely marginalized. Might there be a lesson in that for us as Christians in terms of understanding our own faith better and more deeply and understanding how Christ tried to minister in a way that demonstrated to us the concept of Christian love? So Vince, we're blessed that you are in the law. You understand the law. You help train people in the law. So when we talk about systemic racism, I know there are probably some listeners saying, well, what examples are there of systemic racism? Can you give an example of where the law contributes to what we call structural racism? Sure. Well, I think one great example is the law around housing and the issue of intergenerational wealth creation. So up through the middle of the 20th century, there were laws in place to prevent Black people from purchasing property in many areas of the country, forcing them to only purchase property in certain areas. And there was active discrimination preventing Black people from getting government-supported loans like the FHA and the VA. So meanwhile, white families are taking advantage of this government-supported, tax-supported effort to allow them to become homeowners. Black people are shut out. Over time, of course, those laws changed and active discrimination, at least under the guise of the law, was eliminated or there was less of it. But remember, the Black families are now one, two generations behind the white families who've had now several generations of home ownership and have built wealth through homes. Black people are still being forced to live often in highly segregated areas where they don't gain the same appreciation for their assets. So they end up in a position structurally where they cannot amass the kind of wealth, even modest wealth, that most middle-class white families have been able to amass over the last few generations. And it's not because of behavior. It's not because of a lack of effort. It's because the structures of the economy forced that upon them. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, My career in my previous life was in real estate finance. And I can tell you that even though the laws changed, attitudes, behaviors, and practices didn't. I remember many times having to closed loans. That is, I would get the the documents to draw up for uh, closing when they'd go to actually execute the legal documents to buy the house. And I would see the terms of the loan. I would see the credit background of the applicants. And I would, I'd noticed a pattern of African-Americans with good credit, equal credit as, you know, some of these other white homeowners, when I closed their loans, these African-Americans though, however, were charged exorbitant fees, were also given a higher interest rate, which makes the home more expensive over time for them. And I th- just thought, why are they doing this? And then I realized the loan officer is getting a lot more money by charging more points and being able to get a higher interest rate for people who were credit worthy for something much lower. So even though the law changed, attitudes and practices and the people who are supposed to be engaging in this industry hasn't necessarily 100% changed. I mean, I was just reading not too long ago in the New York Times about an African-American couple having their home undervalued by the appraiser. So what they did 
is they then had a white friend step in and pose as the homeowner and take all their pictures down in the house. And the house prays for like $100,000, $120,000 more once the white friend pretended to be them. So there's still things endemic that remain, even though the law changed, the things that remain that still impact African-Americans today. Such a great story. And I think every Black family knows that if you're selling your house, you want to remove all signs of Blackness. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, I've heard that my whole life, you know, generation after generation, don't let anyone think that Black people live here. Absolutely. That's structural racism. <laughs> and we understand that reality. And maybe Catholics could understand when we talk about sin, we understand that the effects of sin can often outlive the person who committed the sin. Same thing here. There's still things that are outliving what the law intends to change. So that's what we mean by structural racism. One of the things also I think that comes into play here when we start talking about racism and what we're going to do about it is this um, charge that everything is what they call critical race theory. Now, I've been doing some reading on critical race theory, and my understanding of it is it's something that originated among legal scholars and is studied within law schools. But there seems to be a panic that this theory is being taught in kindergarten and, you know, third grade and fifth grade, you know, and I keep thinking, as I'm reading these books, I'm like, this, these are some heavy concepts. I'm like, who, who could make this simple enough for kindergartners? Says you have been in law school, a dean of a law school. Could you help us understand what critical race theory is? Sure. First of all, critical race theory in the context of legal academia, legal education, is an analytical tool. It's this presentation by some, this boogeyman that they have created around critical race theory, that it's this thing, that this mind control mechanism that's going to, to destroy our children, make them all feel terrible about being white, is nonsense. Just to give you a parallel example, there are many other similar theories or other analytical structures that have been used in legal education over the decades that are designed to help us think more deeply about how the law actually impacts people's lives and how legal structures work or don't work in the ways that we want them to. For instance, one that was very well-known over the past 20, 30 years was law and economics. Law and economics was an analytical tool designed to get people to think about how legal structures, legal rules worked when you thought about the relationship to the free market economy and freedom of individuals to engage the economy. And some of the results of that analysis often were not something that a lot of people thought they would want to see happen. Right. Other people said yes. You know, and that's the same thing with critical race theory. By using critical race theory, you come to some understandings about the law that you may or may not agree with. But it helps us understand more deeply the ways in which the law operates, in this case, around the system of racial injustice and racism that has been so deeply present in American culture since its founding. So then that ha makes me ask the question, is critical race theory compatible with Catholicism? Well, of course it is. Not every conclusion that comes out of critical race theory is compatible with Catholicism. But how could it be the case that Catholics would not want to engage with an intellectual tool that helps deepen understanding if the conclusions of that engagement are such that you don't believe they're correct or you believe they're inconsistent with Catholic teaching or your faith as a Catholic? That's fine. But to dismiss it out of hand, uh, because I can say the same thing uh, about uh, law and economics. Law and economics came to many conclusions that I found inconsistent with my beliefs as a Catholic, but that didn't mean I didn't learn about it and engage it and think about the things that they were trying to teach us in terms of the law. 
And if you're going to reject out of hand analytical tools that are designed to deepen understanding, that's just anti-intellectual. It's like modern day mm. book burning. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, one of the things that people say, oh, uses, they'll say that because it looks, they don't even say the law, they say that it looks at things through the lens of race as if that in and of itself is a disqualifier has been a very hard argument for me to understand because I'm like, why shouldn't they look at things through the lens of race if they're trying to determine how to undo unjust domination <laughs> of race? And I also think if an injustice was perpetuated through race, why wouldn't we use that same lens to analyze it to bring justice? I agree with you completely. I find it very difficult to understand, and it sometimes actually makes me angry. So we have had to labor as Black people under the burden of a racial category, a racial category uh-huh. <laughs> that was assigned to us for the express purpose of debasing and dehumanizing us and keeping us at the margins of society or even worse. And now that we are trying to break that down by using the same category that was used to oppress us, somehow it's not legitimate. Yeah. Why is it not legitimate now in the pursuit of justice? But it was perfectly fine to use it in the pursuit of oppression. Yeah. So I, I reject that out of hand. We have to talk about race in this country because race is real in this country. It's not something that has been used in a good way. And I'd like to see it broken down and unpacked and discharged. But in the meantime, we need to work with it. That's the framework we've inherited. So any attempt by people to categorize something so that it becomes untouchable, Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, it's the same way Black people were treated. You categorize someone as Black and they become untouchable. They become outside of the realm of society. You don't eat with them. You don't touch them. You can't marry them. That's Mm. something we don't want to see continued. You know, we need to use the minds that God gave us to break down this injustice and we need to stop, you know, labeling things so that, you know, we scare people away. And that's one thing that it sounds like to me, if you have a Catholic approach in education, we wouldn't fear engaging with tools or ideas. You know what I mean? It's not like all of a sudden my reading these books on critical race theory that somehow in and of itself is going to make me abandon the faith. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's like somehow I'm going to read this book and I'm like, oh no, church is totally wrong. I, I just never got that when I was reading these heavily intellectual books, by the way. The other thing that I thought about when I was reading critical race theory is these are some very smart people trying to untangle an entrenched <laughs> problem in our society. And and I was very appreciative, actually, of, of a lot of the analysis and a lot of looking at the history and uh, looking at the law and, and things like that. So I found that exercise itself very interesting because a lot of people say, you know, it's not enough. Like Catholics will say, oh, just love one another. Okay, that's insufficient <laughs> to really deal with embedded issues in the law. And I think part of what you all did in your racial justice in America is to understand that it's insufficient just to say love one another. That's right. This idea that personal actions of goodwill alone are going to break down structures that have built up over centuries, that's just naive. Mm. And the church itself, in its intellectual tradition, recognizes that and thinks in a much more complex way. So, you know, I think we as lay Catholics have to be a bit more sophisticated in our understanding of these issues and stop pretending that, you know, having a good heart and loving everyone is just going to make justice come into the world. It takes more than that. We'll be back in a minute. (laughs) 
So there's evidence that systemic racism is real. I guess you're saying the role of Catholic education is how people understand is not enough today to just be saying kumbaya. <laughs> you know, we have more that needs to happen within education. But what about the accusations of indoctrination in academic institutions? That CRT, because it re- they say reduces everything to one's racial background, that there's this indoctrination and that it's used to indoctrinate young people. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's a common refrain we hear. And we're in a time right now where there are just relentless attacks against higher education and the concept of, you know, making people uncomfortable in their educational experiences, questioning their beliefs and values, or making them understand sort of the intellectual frameworks that underlie them. And, you know, the idea that universities are set up to indoctrinate young people into a certain way of being is an old accusation that goes back centuries. Mm -hmm. But I think what people are are reacting to is the fact that there are some institutions culturally that have taken on some of these issues and become, you know, maybe overly zealous in their pursuit of their vision of what would be, you know, just solutions Mm -hmm. to these problems. And that people who don't toe the line are marginalized intellectually or don't find it very comfortable in the higher education environment. And we have to be honest, there is some of that that happens. But the idea that institutions are set up and are trying to indoctrinate young people to take them away from the beliefs of their families, to turn them into something their families don't want them to be. No, the idea is for them to become critical consumers of knowledge and to understand how to use their minds in effective ways and to understand why they believe what they believe, and to be able to defend it. Yeah. And we have a problem in this country where people are not critical consumers of information, and they are responding emotionally to appeals, mainly negative appeals, to anger. And and we try to make sure that when we educate people in higher education in this country, which, by the way, is revered around the world for its excellence, Mm -hmm. that they aren't going to become prey to that. You know, I'm glad you brought up that responding emotionally, because it does seem to be this idea that white people, particularly white heterosexual males, are being bullied and purposely made to feel bad, as if that's somehow our intention (laughs) is to make people feel bad when we talk about race and racism and the history of it in our country. And that has been perplexing to me because I'm like, my talking about slavery, neo-slavery, Jim Crow, pig laws, you know, all these kinds of things that were done to harm the human flourishing of Black people. My intent is not at all about how it makes white men feel or white people. It's about how can we as a human family rectify this concretely, you know? And so I have found that uh, framing of it as intentionally trying to make white people feel bad, just so foreign. But maybe again, that's just another tactic, another way of not having to deal with a difficult conversation. But given that we are having these conversations across the country and people want to have these conversations. What does Catholic social teaching offer this conversation? Well, I find Catholic social teaching to be so rich in this context because it is calling us as Catholics and particularly as lay Catholics, and generally it's calling to people of goodwill to understand what really makes us human and why this understanding of our faith can be so empowering. And one thing about Catholic social teaching that always stands out for me is 
Catholic social teaching always situates the individual in community. So mm -hmm. our understanding of individual human flourishing in the Catholic tradition does not rely exclusively on what I want for me and right. my ability to achieve my own personal ends. It demands my engagement with those around me. And in so doing, it makes us notice that there are many people around us who are, for whatever reason, you know, suffering or hurting, or impoverished, marginalized. And we need to engage with that. We need to understand that because it has something to teach us about ourselves. It has something to teach us about our relationship with God. It also has something to teach us about the concept of justice. How do we create a just community in pursuit of the goals of ultimately being united with God? And to me, if we focus on that, we can make a lot of progress on issues like racism because it forces us to see what is happening to people who are you know, being marginalized or discriminated against because of the color of their skin. Well, one of the things when you say that, as I hear this, I was thinking about we, we have a difficulty in the United States because while we are Catholic and we have a certain notion of freedom as Catholics, it seems like at the same time, being American, we have a notion of freedom as Americans. It doesn't square with what we believe freedom is as Catholics. So as Americans, I hear a lot of people say, I should be able to do whatever I want, and that's freedom. But as a Catholic, I know freedom is the ability to do what is good. And that may not necessarily be what it is that I want to do, you know. And so how do we bring this into educating the person without at the same time having people think we're not being patriotic? Well, that's a great question to ask because, you know, Catholics throughout American history have always been suspect yeah. because of this, right, among other things. But, mm -hmm. you know, that our loyalties are divided, that we're not fully American because we answer to the Pope or whatever. Right. But we always seem to come back to this notion that Catholics have to show themselves in some way to be fully American. And I think we have to, as Catholics, start pushing back against that and asking ourselves, maybe sometimes we're becoming too American and less Catholic. Mm. One of the ways that assimilation happened was by, you know, making all of these European ethnics white in yeah. the American context. And that you know, sort of allowed them to take on all the advantages of whiteness, you know, this American construct of whiteness, and it pulled them away, you know, from some of their understandings, cultural understandings from their Catholic pasts in Catholic countries about their relationship to others. I'm not saying that there wasn't racism in other places, but I'm just saying right. that the cultural understandings that many of these groups brought to the United States have been sort of assimilated yeah. much more deeply into American notions like individualism and that we're starting to see the effect of that. Now the church has become much more politicized through an American lens in this country that really is very unfamiliar to people who are from more Catholic countries. Yeah. I would think that we do look strange when people <laughs> from other Catholic countries here, we talk about things, they're like, what in the world is that? So I'm imagining and hoping that young people, upon hearing this conversation about what it means to be Catholic, what a Catholic education is, how do we deal with structures of sin, would be a positive one. But I am in social media discovering that's not always the case. How has it been um, your experience with young people trying to engage in these issues from a Catholic lens? What's been your experience with this? How have they responded? Well, I've been really gratified by the young people that I've been in, mostly in contact with, mainly law students, mm. who really do seem to be 
throwing themselves into deep thinking around these issues. They don't always agree with one another, clearly. But I do think there have been some major social changes over the last few decades around a lot of issues related to race and other key social structures in our society, where young people really have charted some new territory. They proceed from a different set of assumptions about what they believe justice requires. And they are really anxious and really invested in pushing past this history we have in this country Mm. around racism. And with my own children who are all in their 20s, the youngest is 20, the oldest is almost 27. Mm -hmm. When these racial justice issues came out, they would often say to me, I mean, I was worried that maybe they were a little too sensitive, you know, a lot of slights that they perceived around racial injustice in their Mm -hmm. day-to-day lives. You know, you older people are used to saying, well, you just got to let that go, right? (laughs) Right. Right. But they weren't willing to let it go. And one of the things they said to me is like, why are we still dealing with this Mm. after everything that has happened, after the civil rights movement, after all the things that have, why is this still an issue? And we obviously have to work harder to destroy it, to make it go away. And Mm -hmm. I see a lot of that with young people today. Although not all, as I say, not all agree, there are some real differences. And some people seem to feel that this is a political issue, which is what I find distressing when, you know, we're trying to defeat racism in the American context and people seem to think that that's a part of some political agenda, when in fact, it's always been there in our country. Well, some of the pushback we're getting, at least what I'm hearing, is that any steps that we take to remedy racial injustice is now called reverse racism. I struggle with what are what are people trying to do when they say that? What do they really mean by that? It's almost as if they're saying we're being unjust in seeking some kind of remedies for long-term injury out of racist policy, racist law, racist behavior, attitudes, practices, traditions. What is your response to that? Yeah, I agree. I, I think part of the problem is I think a lot of white people in this country have no idea or have been willfully blind to the true reality of the experience of being black in this country, for instance, over the last centuries, certainly, but even more recently, something I often hear from some white friends is, okay, I'll tell them a story about something that happened in my family. And they usually are like, well, that happened a long time ago. Things are better now. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, right. This is part of our daily experience. This is part of our lived experience as a family. These were things we were not able to achieve. These were houses we weren't able to buy, jobs we weren't able to get. I mean, I tell the story often of my father-in-law, who was one of the first black engineers at Bell Labs in New mm-hmm. Jersey in the early 1960s. They dumped garbage on his desk every single day. Ooh. They hung him in effigy on his you know, desk lamp. Now, wow. don't you think that had some impact on my wife and her brother and, his, and my mother-in-law with their father dealing with that? Don't you think that had some impact on his progression through his career? Yeah. He dealt with it, but there are consequences internally and beyond. And there are things that are still happening, like police violence. Yeah. And it's as if if we try to talk about it, suddenly we're being reverse racists yeah. <laughs> to try to correct a problem that we've had to deal with always and our children still deal with in different ways. So I think that you know this idea of reverse racism is crazy talk in a way because What power do Black people have in this country that would allow us to exercise the kind of use of racism today that was applied to us over the last few centuries? I mean, it's a corrective when we talk about race. It's not a a, a means of oppressing. Right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story that, 
You know, I don't think people realize the depth to which things happen to us. A, a friend of mine on Twitter actually shared, and this is just to help people understand that she went to Mass out of town and her 14-year-old was the first in their family as they were lining up to go to Mass to approach the priest. And the priest stopped him. They were only Black family in this church and said, have you received your first communion? To her 14-year-old. And so to some people, they may, oh, that's unfortunate, but they don't understand the cumulative effect of these things and then the questions that it brings. And so now here we are dealing with this event that happened on Sunday that my friend shared, and it's we're already a few days out from that, but still trying to process what was meant by that. Why did he make these assumptions? Why did we have to experience that? And what it did for their experience of the Mass, what it did to their child, who's clearly past the age of freeze. He's clearly, he's 14, that of all the people coming and going to communion, the priest had to stop him. Like, let me make sure. You sure? I, I Did you? And so it's just maybe for some Catholics to sort of understand, because maybe even uh, to me, that was a very touching story. And I get it. And I get the levels of pain and trauma that that brings to a person and to their family. But maybe giving also this example, imagine going into a church and being doubted that you should present yourself for communion. You're doubted. Your Catholicism is doubted. And then even when they come to say, okay, maybe you are Catholic, but you're just not worthy. And they don't know you from Adam. And this is a 14-year-old. And she's just trying to find the most charitable reason for that. And she can't, you know, she can't find one. And so when people say things like things are better, it kind of diminishes that the knife's not all the way out of our back and no bandage has been applied to cause healing. So I'm not really healed, as Malcolm X says, when you pull the knife only halfway out, that's not progress. That's so true. And I think you know something that needs to be discussed is how white Christianity in the United States was complicit in many, many structures of racism in this country and actually propped up many structures of racism, from the support of slavery to simply participating in all kinds of actions that are bound up with segregation, racism. And there sometimes seems to be this notion that, well, particularly for Catholics, we weren't really a big part of that, but it happened. Yeah, we were. We were very much a part of it. And all the assumptions that come out of a culture based on white supremacy come out in moments just like the one you described. Well, one of the things, too, that people will say is they can't see racism unless it's been an overt, intentional act to them. So they didn't say a racial slur, so how do you know it's racism? You know, so it's kind of even people's understanding of what racism is, I think, has been twisted in a way so that they can never see it. And that's a conversation that we'll have to try to plow and really dig into to help people understand what it is. Because absent those things that were once commonplace, like, you know, whites only signs or, you know, just explicit racial slurs and used to refer to Black people openly, regularly, that absent that, people say they just don't see that there is racism. And so our progress in terms of getting that part of racism to not be expressed so openly has in a way also made people think, well, then therefore there is no racism. And I'm so glad with the work that you have been doing at Boston College, and I'm looking forward to everything that's going to happen for you at Holy Cross. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast to talk about these issues, to talk about what you're doing in Catholic education to help form the entire person and how that comes into play in conversations around race. 
Well, thank you for having me and thank you for the work that you're doing to make this conversation more meaningful for more people around the country. Uh, it's great that you're doing this work and I'm really happy to have had this time to have this conversation with you. Why, thank you, cousin. We got to get on that uh, family genealogy. <laughs> <laughs> This is our sixth episode of the Gloria Purvis podcast. And can you believe it? Wow, this happened so quickly. But guess what? We are just getting started. And whether you've been with me from the very first episode when we talked about George Floyd or you just discovered the show today, I'm so blessed to have you journeying with me. Look, I'm trying to do my part to speak about these issues openly and faithfully. And I hope you have a part in that too. If you're getting informed and inspired by our conversations or maybe even challenged, then other people probably will too. So please consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member. Help me get the good word out there into the parishes and schools and communities. Look, wherever you are, I'm hoping you'll take me too and introduce me to your friends and family and to your colleagues. And you know what? Be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. I'd love to hear from you. And you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.